Men's spaces are respected regardless of anyone being there or not. Women's spaces are tolerated if women really want them, but they're not respected as a thing. And I think that gisha, that attitude, really affects the way women are treated in orthodoxy in general. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. This is not an episode about women of the wall. It's not an episode about women for the wall. It's not an episode about the egalitarian space at Robinson's Arch, which I discussed a couple of weeks ago. Instead, this is an episode about fairness and respect and dignity, issues that should concern everyone who cares about Judaism, regardless of how you feel about non-Orthodox prayer at the Kotel or about women reading the Torah on the women's side of the wall. When I go to the Kotel, I can't help but notice that the women's side is often much more crowded than the men's side. Now, let's be upfront about the halakhic reality. Men have an obligation to pray in a minion, a quorum, while women do not. Because of this, it's not unreasonable to expect more men to come to shul than women, and that is often what happens. Moreover, assuming that the Kotel has the status of a synagogue, it's reasonable to expect more men to come to the Kotel. And if it's true that more men visit the Kotel than women— the men's section should be larger than the women's. But based on my own anecdotal experience, the women's section is frequently, and it seems to me is usually, significantly more crowded than the men's section. Are we really okay with women having to squeeze in to touch the kotel while the men have no problem doing so? And moreover, as we'll discuss shortly, even if there are fewer women there, perhaps the reason that women might attend less is because they're so crowded and feel less welcome. It might well be that even if we discover that the size of the women's section is directly proportional to how many women visit, if that Ezrat Nashim were larger, more women would come. My ideal solution would be a machitza that could be moved to the right or left based on how many people are in each section at each time. When the numbers of men go up, the machitza could be moved further to the right. And when there are increased numbers of women, it could be moved to the left to accommodate. I also realize that in the polarized atmosphere of the Kotel today, This would likely lead to riots and worse, as people constantly try to move the mechitza based not on actual numbers, but based on what they feel is right and just. So I know it probably can't work in the real world, at least not yet. At the same time, the problem with space at the Kotel is, I think, emblematic of a problem with space in general. While as Orthodox Jews, we believe that communal prayer should not involve mixed gender space and that synagogues halachically require a mechitza, Is there a reason that this has started to extend to places where it's not required halakhically, and that the women's sections that exist are often treated with such disrespect? To discuss this, I invited Ann Gordon and Shoshana Kitsch-Jaskal, the hosts of the Chochmat Nashim podcast, to talk about the Kotel and the larger problem of disrespecting women in Orthodox spaces in ways that have nothing to do with halakha. Ann Gordon and Shoshana Kitsch-Jaskal, thank you for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for having us. Let me tell you what happened when I went to the Kotel on Friday. I went there because I thought there was a possibility that there'd be more excitement, let's just say, by the Robinson's Arch section of the Kotel. Looking for trouble? I always do. And I came with a microphone. <laughs> and you know what? 
perhaps bad for my podcast, but definitely good for Klai Yisrael. When I was there, nothing happened. Now, I have heard subsequently that it was not quite as calm as I believed by looking with my own eyes, apparently, before I got there. I got there about 8.30. I had davened earlier. Apparently, things did happen, perhaps, in the Ezrat Nashim. I'm not sure at Robinson's Arch. That's not really what I want to talk about, because once I got there, I saw the same thing that I always notice every time, almost, that I go to the Kotel, which is the inequitable distribution of space at the Kotel between men and women. I'm not speaking anymore about Robinson's Arch. Once I was there, and there was no excitement at the egalitarian section, there was a bar mitzvah going on, police were guarding it, everything seemed good, calm, no protests, great. I went to go and learn at the Kotel. And I noticed the men's section, it was pretty crowded, it was Rosh Chodesh, but it was not nearly as crowded as the women's section. So I decided on my own to do like an amateur's measurement using just steps. And I stepped the entire length of the women's section. I stepped the entire length of the men's section, both inside and outside. And based on my amateur measurement, it seems to me that the women's section is 27 steps long. The men's section outside is 40 steps long, and the men's section inside, and I know a lot of people don't even realize there is a huge section inside, that section inside is 57 steps long, which means that the men's section of the Kotel is 97 to 27, or a ratio of 11 to 3. Now, admittedly, the inside section doesn't go as deep as the outside section, but there's still plenty of room inside. And I sat in there. It was wonderful to enjoy the shade. And I was thinking about how my, my women friends could not enjoy the same thing because there is a tiny section, my wife says, on the women's section that goes inside. When I asked her, could you fit 100 people in there? She laughed in my face. She said, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. Right. Anyway. I'm not saying we are going to change anything now. I'm not telling you anything I'm sure that you both don't know very, very well, far better than I do. But it made me think about the problem at the Kotel and in general, inequitable distribution of resources, inequitable treatment. Let me make one thing clear before I turn the ball over to you. I'm not talking about anything in halacha. I am not suggesting we change halacha. I want this to be clear. I'm not talking about the fact that there's a machitza. I'm not talking about the fact that prayer is segregated, men on one side, women on the other side. However, I am talking about the fact that once halacha has determined that men should be on the men's side and women should be on the women's side, why must we then make the women's section even smaller? And by the way, Lest anyone say, because I hear this all the time, well, because since men have a chiyuv, there has to be more room on the men's side. I know. Why in that case was the women's side so crowded and the men's side far less crowded? It's not true. Meaning, yes, if there are, let's say, two-thirds more men than women, then you should have two-thirds more space. If they're equal, it should be equal. If you have more women, there should be more space on the women's side. That has nothing to do with halacha. I know there are halacha issues, and we'll get to them soon, about expanding the size of the women's section potentially. But I want to first ask you about your impressions about this Kotel situation, and then we can Take it from there. Yeah, Anne. Well, first, I just want to establish that the Kotel division between the men's space and the women's space used to be not equitable. That's putting it too far. That's going too far, but more equitable than it is now. I don't remember exactly when it became this three fourteenths that you measured of the total space, but I would say 30 years ago, certainly, it was not. It was probably closer to one-third, two-thirds, or two-fifths, three-fifths, something like that, meaning something that was, the women's section was still smaller, there was no inside section really hardly at all, the men's inside section was also smaller, 
And if you were looking for something to be even, Stephen, equal in that kind of measurement, it wasn't. But it didn't feel like this crowded smush of people and the men had all that space. So I can tell you, actually, Anne, when it went from being not so equitable to even really what the heck is going on so that men even notice. And forgive me, Scott, but I can't tell you how many men have said to me, you know, you guys really have a lot less space than we do. <laughs> like, yes, yes, we do. Thank you. <laughs> so actually, um, in 2004, there was an earthquake. There was, you know, the Mugrabi Gate is the one gate that Jews can ascend the Temple Mount. And it goes over and above the women's section. So in about 2004, there was like an earthquake and about a lot of that earth from underneath the Mugabe Gate fell into the women's section. Um, and it even, it made it even smaller. And um, so that's when we went from having not so much ants to even what the heck's going on. No, but Shoshana, no. Rabbi Rabinovich, Rabbi Shmuel Rabinovich, who's the rabbi of the Kotel, shrunk the women's section intentionally, meaning maybe it was around them, maybe it was after them during the cleanup. I, again, I can't tell you. Yes, that's, here, what happened. That's, what happened. I, so that's what happened. So that's what happened. Basically, he... <laughs> We said, or the women said, like, we have no more space because we've been, our space has been uh, closed off. And then he wrote a, like, what is it, nine page response to like asking to make it bigger. And he said, it's not allowed because the men's section has more sanctity than the women's section. And you can only increase Kedusha, you can't decrease Kedusha. And so they would not move the divider over more so that the women could have more space given that our space was taken away. Can I just make sure I understand what happened? You're saying that, in other words, the women's space, if I'm facing the Kotel right now, the women's section went further to the right. And then because of what mm-hmm. fell down, a lot of that was closed off, but the machitza remained where it was. Nothing was changed. Correct. Correct. And he refused to do so in a nine-page response in 2006 called, if anybody wants to look it up, I'll get it for you, Sha'are Tzion by Rabbi Rabinovich. What's interesting to me in my personal experience is that I had lived in Israel in the 90s and I had that experience of the Kotel that I described of this one third, two thirds or whatever the proper dimensions really were. And then I came back in 2005 and there was this, I don't know, recalibration. I didn't know why. I didn't know about the earthquake. I didn't know the shenanigans behind the scenes about this greater sanctity in the men's section. I imagine someone wants to say, well, there was an earthquake that intentionally shrunk the women's section to prevent the greater lack of sanctity on that side. Come on. I didn't know about it in this kind of way. I'm glad to have the backstory. It doesn't change the fact that the davening at the Kotel became far less pleasant and far less enticing to, if you're going at any time that isn't a truly empty hour of the day, meaning two o'clock in the morning, fine, sure, the women's section is fairly empty then, but any other time on a Rosh Chodesh or not, I don't have the desire to go that I might have once had. The lack of excitement makes me sad. I agree with you 100%, Anne, and, and I don't know if men have this experience, but women usually have to wait four or five women deep to touch the wall, and not everybody cares about touching the wall, but a lot of people do, like whether it's just to give a kiss, whether it's to put a, a, a note in, whether it's to hold it while you're davening. But there are there's a wait, like the waiting line for women all across. And you have women, you know, like squeezing in and jostling in. And and it's always it's kind of like it's the same thing in Shul, Scott. Like, I know the whole idea here is like, what are we doing here? Why are we squeezing literally women out of orthodox spaces? Like, what's the agenda here? And it's kind of like in shul when 
the men get to do stuff with the Torah all the time. And like Simplest Torah comes and we're like, can we please, 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 please have a Torah on our side? Please, can you just put it on the, please? And we're begging. And I know plenty of men and Simplest Torah are just outside waiting for this thing to be over. And the women are just desperate to get a Torah. And it's, it's, it makes me feel like you can assume, like, why are we constantly being shut out of this experience that we want to have? And when is it going to be so much shutting out that we're just walking away? I'll see you and I raise you, Shoshana. What about all the women's sections that have men davening in them that oh. then prevent the women who want to come and daven, whether it's a Friday night davening, Shabbat morning davening, or any other time during the week when it's a women's section? That's what it, the shul has been built that way. And it is not the case that no women want to daven there, even if the numbers are not comparable to the men numbers and the space should be available. And yet, and yet how many, how many times do you feel like I can't go in because there are men there. So then you have women not diving in the women's section, but diving outside of the shul. It's really intolerable. Okay. So Anne, I'm going to get to what you said in just a moment, because that's a really important point. And I once talked about that in a podcast, which I will refer to shortly. I want to first get back to what Shoshana said about the lesser sanctity of the Ezrat Nashim, because I want to be fair here. That is not an untenable position. And to explain it, Men are part of a minyan, so therefore, since men make up the minyan, there is a question in halachic sources whether when women pray, because they can't count towards the quorum, whether their tefillah is officially part of tefillah b'tzibor, a communal prayer, or even if they are in a communal prayer space, it is still tefillah b'yachid, it is still an individual prayer just taking place in a communal space. That is a machloket, an argument among various halachic decisors. Because of that, some do say that the women's section, which is not the home of that tefillah b'tzibur, assuming you hold that position, the women's section has sanctity, but lesser sanctity than the men's section. So it is not a crazy position, though, that no one says. By the way, before this podcast, I reached out to Rabbi Eli Fisher, who knows, I think, everything. And he told me, in terms of the <laughs> question halachically about expanding a machitza in any shul, kotel or anywhere else, let's assume the kotel is a shul, but anywhere, the idea of expanding the women's section, he told me there are four or five different opinions, everything from there's no problem, don't worry about it, all the way to it's a sore, it's prohibited. He said you can basically find any opinion to agree with what you already believe. I will point out, however, that the Aruch HaShulchan in Simon Kufnan Dalet Sif Zion, that's 154, section 7, says explicitly, I even looked it up this morning just to make sure, he says that the women's section has exactly the same sanctity as the men's section. So leaving aside what halakha position you hold by, it would seem to me only right that in a situation where it causes such tremendous agmat nefesh, a situation where people are so upset and deservedly so because they have so little space, that perhaps this is a time that we should not be machmir. This is not a time that we should hold by the most stringent opinion, but instead hold by one of the more lenient opinions said by no one less than the Aruch HaShulchan, who is one of the most important halachic decisors of all time. And just one more point before I hand it over to Shoshan. I know you want to say something. For the sake of honesty, I want to be fair. The inside section that the men have, there is a machitza in there and a platform. It's not particularly large. There is a small section where women can go, presumably if there's a bar mitzvah or something like that of a family member, I don't know. But there is a machitza area in there for women. It's small, but it exists. And Where? Inside. The inside section yeah, of the kotel. I Kotel's. just want to clarify Scott, you're saying that the women should walk through the men's No, section. no, no. That's not true. There's a way of getting in. I don't know how you do it. But yeah, you go there to is... the tunnel tours. It's the tunnel tour section. Perhaps. I just know because yesterday... But I just know I would because... just like to clarify yeah. about what you're saying. 
is that section where basically the women are behind soundproof walls and have to use headphones to hear potentially what's going on down there. And it doesn't, they usually don't work. And it's extremely, extremely I'm not defending it. I just want to say, I'm just like, I'm no, for the sake of honesty, I'm just describing what you're describing. You you and I both know that on the Facebook post, there's going to be someone saying you were so dishonest. There was a women's section inside that tunnel. So I want to say, yes, it is. It's not a very nice one, but it's there for the sake of clarity. Shoshana, what did you want to say? You know, you raise an interesting point. You're saying, but if we can, why do we have to take the most stringent position? And I kind of wonder, have you been living in the same country I've been living in? Well, I I don't mean politically. I realize I'm not speaking realistically. I'm speaking halakhically. I agree with you. But I want to tell you something. When I was young and before I was married, and even after I was married, actually, we would go to Tzfat. And we would go to the Kivrei Tzadikim. We would go through that beautiful... um, I know you probably can't go, Scott. I'm a Kohen, right. If you've been... If you've been or you've seen uh, the Tzfat Cer- uh, Cemetery, which is the, you know, uh, luminaries are there, like, like the Arizal and the University of Karo and, and the al Sheikh, and they're buried there. And you could go, I remember going there and davening on the Tzion, davening there for whatever I was davening for with no restrictions. I went a few years ago and there are segregated staircases that lead the women to behind the kever davening to a wall and the men can go right around and literally there was a man there prostrate on top of the tzion and I was expected to look at a wall and I know in my own lifetime and I'm not that old that I certainly was never restricted that way when we're not restricted that way so not only are we separating what we consider to be holy spaces but we're separating and putting women behind walls in cemeteries and that's not a synagogue where people are praying, where there's an expectation of a mechitza. A, a cemetery never has an expectation of a mechitza until right. now, until this kind of thing. And, and so you want to talk about? I didn't know about this. You want to talk about limiting women's spaces? I think, I think Scott, that there has always been an imbalance in orthodoxy in women's spaces versus men's spaces. But I think that Shoshana is exactly right that. Of late, of late in the past 10 years, let's say, um, there has been a, a much more conscious effort to separate men and women. And that kind of separation inherently, sadly, inherently is never equal. There's one place that I saw was equal because I went looking and I went looking. I went all to the Kfarim. We went, me and Laura and David, with your pictures. We went all the way through, not all the way through, but we went. The only place that's separate but equal is the Rambam's Kevin Haifa exactly down the middle they have sfarim on one side we have sfarim on another side and everyone has the same amount of kever that's the only place i saw where they actually made an effort so that anyone whatever gender you are can touch see have air conditioning in the same location but everything else including the muka and the i don't know if you guys ever went to the ari mikvah in spot like it was basically just like a, a cave where it was really cold water and everybody went in the men have taken it, meaning I went towards it to see it. I was kicked out, literally kicked out of an open public space because the men have said, now it's a men's mikvah. Do they ever say it's not a women's mikvah or not? No, they have taken over the whole thing and it's only a men's mikvah. To be clear, right, we should just clarify for the listeners, the Ari's mikvah was never used as a, as a mikvah for Tarat Mishpacha. Right. It was used as a spiritual experience as I want to say never. But this is what yeah, people would just go and dunk whenever they wanted. Oh, I don't know. Right. I don't know about the 1600s. I'm talking about 
I'm talking about of late when women, like if women used to be able to go, it was for the the general public because it's a Mayan. <laughs> but but because but because it was a spiritual awakening or whatever, not because it was a purification from the status of, of Nida. Yeah. Meaning it would work that way. It would work that way. But nobody was using it after in after dark in the way that women go to the mikvah. OK, Anna Shoshana, let me tell you the utter hypocrisy of what's going on based on what you just told me, because obviously as a Kohen, I don't go to Kfarim. I don't know what happens over there. But here's the problem. The reason that men deserve I use that word. Not literally, but the reason that men deserve more space in the public mind, air quotes, right? You can't see them on a podcast, but they're there. The reason men deserve more space in a shul is ostensibly because, and this is halachically true, men have a chiyuv tzadavin in a tzibor, in a minion, and women do not. Whether or not it counts as tefillah b'tzibor, I believe the Rav says it does, Rav Salvechik, but whether or not women's tefillah b'tzibor counts, there's no chiyuv, there's no obligation. So therefore, men have a greater obligation to be in a shul where there's a minyan than women. Therefore, there are more men who come, and therefore, they need more space. So far, that's fine, as long as the women's space is equitable. If one-tenth of women come, there should be at least one-tenth of space, not one-twentieth or one-fiftieth. Leaving that aside, that means that women have a greater likelihood of davening independently, not in a minyan. And a kever is a place for individual davening. It is not a place for minyan. And therefore, by all rights, since that is not where men can do their halachic obligations, but it is where women have that main obligation, therefore, the space for women at kvarim, by definition, should be larger than the men's space. I'm not trying to be... be I'm not separation. It's a kever. Let's assume they already have the separation. I agree. But even if there is a separation, why Dafka make the women stand behind the kever? Or at the Rambam's kever, it's equal. Why? No, there should be more space because men have to go to shul. If women want to dive in, go ahead. Yes, Anne. I want to I want to say something else about these numbers, right, Scott? You said it should be equitable that if one tenth of the women come, then there should be they should at the very least have one tenth of the space. Um, I want to point out that while that that rationale works for me when we're talking about the difference between two fifths and three fifths, or even one third and two thirds, once you're talking about a tenth, you're automatically having in the in the physical plant you're having a deterrent against women's participation, against women's showing up. Because, because it's not treating women bekavod. It's true that women come to shul, to minion, to a much lesser degree. I myself, I used to go to minion all the time. My life doesn't account for that right now. But if I wanted to go, and there are plenty of times when I want to go, I want to go to a, to a shul that is treating the women's presence there bekavod. With with honor, with dignity, and I don't think that the number of seats has to be equal. But I do think that when we're talking about equitable, when we're talking about something being a place to daven with dignity, the women have to feel like they are welcome. They're not counting for the minion. They're not davening from the amud. They're not reading from the Torah in an orthodox shul in a traditional orthodox shul. But but they need to feel that they're davening. Matters, as you say, right? The idea that they are part of the seaboard, that they get the benefit of being at Tfila Batsibor, participation in that way. I feel it, I feel it strongly, as you hear, that the way the women's section is constructed and the size of the women's section for that matter as well makes a real difference in the likelihood of the women coming to begin with. So to say that if only a tenth of the women come, then they should only have a tenth of the space. But what happens if you give them, you know, a quarter of the space, maybe more will come and maybe more will come better. You know, so this is a classic thing, Anne, 
men that I've seen all the time over and over. And I've seen certain men say the same thing over and over again on Facebook. If you want more space in shul, if you want more say in shul, show up. Right. And you're just like, well, where am I supposed to go when I'm like, you know, and then there's like, well, if you show up, then we'll build it. <laughs> like, as opposed to we'll build it, you show up. And it's kind of like, do I have to fight over everything? And I think you, Scott asked a really good question. You both raised really good points. And Scott like asked a really important question. Why is this being done? Because this is being done all throughout the country and all throughout orthodoxy. It's a real problem. Again, I emphasize, I'm not talking about changing halacha. That is not my stance. I do not believe in that. But once we have a certain halachic requirement, why then further the insult to injury? And I want to say that I appreciate your calling me out on that one about the one-tenth, because you're absolutely right. This gets back to the point that we referenced earlier about the fact that there are already men too often davening on the women's side. And if a woman shows up at shul, she has to again kick the men out. And What's the siman? What's the siba? What happens first? Are men davening there because women don't show up? Or do women not show up because they know they're going to have to kick all the men out? I did a podcast about this. It might have already been three years ago when my daughter, Tali, showed up at a local shul. She likes to daven with a minion. And she was really, really upset that particular day because when she went to the women's section, there was a meeting. It had been rented out or given over to a meeting of a school that was meeting in there. And I don't remember exactly what happened anymore. People who want can listen to the podcast. They can go back and take a look. But what it came down to was that they wouldn't move or they didn't move. And she had to leave shul. It was just, it was utterly absurd. If you have a women's section, it should be a women's section 100%. I have heard, I don't know this. I have heard that Yeshiva University, they have signs and apparently it's taken seriously that during davening, men aren't allowed in the women's section, whether women are there or not. This is such an interesting point, Scott. I want to try to say this the right way. What you're saying is men's spaces are respected regardless of anyone being there or not. Women's spaces are tolerated if women really want them, but they're not respected as a thing. And I think that gisha, that attitude, really affects the way women are treated in orthodoxy in general. And, it, and, I, and I see it throughout, you know, we see it throughout this kind of stuff. Like if my space isn't respected, if you can walk in and out when you want to, because it, you're more important or your obligation is more important and I'm there at your tolerance. So everything about me becomes that way. Women are tolerated in Orthodox spaces. Well, as long as we're not bothering anyone, we can be there. And that whole gisha has to change. That entire idea of as long as nobody minds, we can be there is it. It, it, it's honestly like I, I could say I'm angry, but I'm just devastated because what, what are we leaving for our kids? I mean, I can pull out of it, but like, you know, meaning I can have my Judaism and, and not be upset about it. But if this is the way Judaism is going, so what are we doing for our daughters? It's also, I think, in the attitudes that people have, right? Like the what it takes for a woman to walk into the women, into the men's section to ask for a small in for Hatarat Nidarim or to get a prusbol. These are things that I have done and I have done them with trepidation and with awkwardness in a way where nobody thought twice about my walking through to, to speak to the Rav, to get these, to get the document, to find the beating, whatever. Meaning I'm the one who's sensitive to this. I'm the one who's shy about, and I might be shy, more shy than the next person over anyway. But the fact that I know that there are other women who have had the same experience of like the, Ooh, ick, ah, I got to walk through the men to get to the place at the front where I need to talk to the rabbi, for example. That's a very different experience than, I'm not saying that every man 
doesn't stop to think twice before walking through a women's section. But there are plenty of men who don't stop to think twice. And I think the women do stop to think twice because there's something very, I don't mean intimidating, like a, a fear factor. I mean, the this is not where I'm supposed to be yes, because 100%. this is a male dominated space. And then I would say the man who feels like he should not be walking through the women's section because this is a female dominated space. That's exactly right. But the men who feel like, well, this is my bait me drash every other day. Mm -hmm. This is I need that book over there. So I'm going to climb through and over the women who are actually dominating. You know, I, I say this tongue in cheek, except for that it is real and it happens, you know, plenty of days of the week. I would say, Anne, that what you're talking about, which is something that's instilled in us as, as girls. I mean, let's be honest. We since we're girls, we know where we can and cannot go. So when COVID hit, Corona hit, I should say, is we're in Israel. Nobody says COVID in Israel. Corona hit um, and the minyanim were outside our doors. All of a sudden, our public spaces, our front doors became spaces we had to, can I go? Can I not go? To get to my car, to run in the morning when we had a hundred meter limit. Okay. I could only exercise within a hundred meters. That literally meant I could go up and down my street. And yet there were minyanim multiple times a day. So when I tried to explain to the men of the building, which was hard enough, by the way, to say to them, guys, can you please try and find a way that we can walk out of our front doors without walking through a minyan? They're like, what do you mean? Just go. We're like, I don't think you understand what you're saying to me to walk through a minyan in running clothes. That also meant Friday night when women were going to the mikvah because we weren't allowed to go anywhere else. So everybody knew where you were going on a Friday night had to walk through a minyan. And when I got up the courage to say something to the men in the, in, the, in the whatever, they were like, I don't understand what the problem is, just go. And it, it, it was so upsetting to me that they couldn't just listen and say, I cannot de describe to you how awkward and difficult it is what you're saying to women. Women are not going on Friday night because you guys are out there. It took my husband threatening to go out in a bathrobe, walking through the minyan for them to move. And where did you want them to move? Because it was down COVID, it was Corona. No, just down the street. There's a whole empty parking lot. They can ah, okay. to six feet between them. But this, that's the kind of thing that really was location dependent, community dependent. I know of other people who during the changes that were made during the height of COVID, right? Meaning the height of the lockdowns of COVID really more than a matter of the infection per se. And there were people who were then davening in backyard minyanin or where people were kind of, you know, everybody's on their own mirpeset and kind of joining their voices from here to there. And some of the women I know said, I don't ever want to go back to shul. Yeah, 100%. Because that, that kind of setting became not because of walking through a midsection, but because they felt present and accounted for divided, meaning it was still not men and women mixed. It was not a, a co-ed environment. It was segregated and and with dignity and with respect. And everybody was in the same boat. Can I ask another question? And this isn't a fair question for me to say because I am not a woman, but I have heard that it actually flips, meaning some of this is coming from the attitudes that some women have in their own self-definition, I guess, because of the way we have defined these spaces, such as the example where a woman herself would tell other women, oh, don't go over there. The men are davening in a case like you're discussing Shoshana, whether it's uh, running outside during a minute or something like that. 
In other words, they're saying, oh, no, the men don't want to see us, and therefore it would be wrong for me to do this. I don't mean that a woman wants to go out, but she's cowed by the minion there. I'm talking about a situation where women themselves serve as a police force, say, don't go there, because obviously that would be a sore, that would be terrible, where they've they've imbibed that same value. Scott, we're trained since girlhood. That's that what I'm talking about. That our presence is a bother. That's that what I'm talking about. It's a problem. And so any woman who's making that statement, it's because she was trained that way. I'm talking about women's self-definition based on the way that they've been trained from childhood. Of course, of course. I want to say, Scott, you know, you and I graduated the same high school, which was co-ed for Limud de Kodesh and general studies. And the women's section, certainly at the time that I was davening in high school, was... It was a real shul. It has since been redone and, and perhaps much more glorious, but it was certainly treated as a respectable shul. And the girls were expected to be in davening and and attendance was taken, right? All these kinds of things, right? And I'm going to say, and yet, I think that you will find that the majority of alumni from Maimonides, from our alma mater, who are coming from and subscribing to a traditional Orthodox approach, because not everybody in the school was in that camp. But of those who are, I think that still what Shoshana describes will certainly apply to the certainly to the vast majority of women, that there's a a trepidation and the sensitivity and am I really allowed to be here, even though I was raised with the of course you're allowed to be there, you're expected to be there and we're going to take attendance to make sure that you're there. Okay, and why? Why is that true? Why do you think that's true that despite the training that we all had saying don't imbibe those values, they still imbibe them? Why is that so? I think there's there's possibly two reasons here. I'm sure there's many more, right? But let's, for the sake of the conversation, at least two reasons. One is that Maimonides school is not in a vacuum in the Orthodox world and that there is other influences on everybody who goes there because there's influence from the Haredi cousins or from the Haredi shul at the block or or even without the Haredim, just the expectation. How many people did I know who said, you know, the the more stringent approach that is more restrictive is preferred, is really the ideal. And this is kind of like a uh, an ersatz watering down. I think that that's part of it. I think the other thing, and I'm nervous to say this because I think it requires a huge amount of research. I'm sure some of it has been done, but the question of, dare I say, differences between men and women to begin with, and the way women don't always feel, meaning not just Orthodox women, not just Jewish women, don't always feel that they are entitled to take up the same space. I mentioned to you before we actually started recording about the New York City subways, right? And there's this joke about man spread, right? Where a man plunks himself down on a bench on the New York City subways, any subway, any train, it buses, it doesn't matter. It's not New York, right? And, and he is there. He is taken up his bench. And it doesn't matter if the train is full that the woman comes on and she's going to go find somewhere else or she's going to stand in the corner rather than say, excuse me, sir, you're taking up three spots for the one spot. Again, I'm wary of saying that this is specific to women. Certainly it's not true of all women. I'm sure some of it is culture, nature, nurture, whatever, right? But I think that once we're aware of that, once we're aware of the fact that women are going to be more self-effacing in the in the question of women's spaces and men's spaces, whether because of the training from other orthodoxy or from just something innate, I think we need to accommodate that or, or counter it and make sure that the women have the dignified space to show up 
to be counted, even if they're not counting for the minion, but to be counted, to be present. Well, that's a good question, Anne. Is it our obligation? Is it orthodoxy's obligation to say, this is a phenomenon that's happening. We want women to be, uh, to, to feel welcome and to come into all their spaces and to be present. Is it orthodoxy's and the orthodox union and whatever we're talking about, uh, obligation to make spaces for women that where women feel comfortable or is it up to the women to have to fight for it? So obligation is a strong word, but I think it is advisable. I think it is to the betterment of the entire Orthodox world. I think we know Sarah Schneer is the one who pointed it out, you know, now decades and decades ago, right? That if the women are not avid participants, the world of Orthodoxy, the world of tradition falls by the wayside. So this is just another angle of that same thing, I think. Before, when you mentioned dignified spaces, it made me think of a different idea because one of the questions or perhaps one of the issues that people have said, it's not completely unreasonable. They say that because women inherently have less to do in shul, if we're following the halachic system, women are not going to lead the davening, certainly not for divine mishpah kedusha. There are many things that women can't do. There are more things that men can do. And people say the synagogue is an institution that was crafted by human beings. And therefore, it is a space that was really designed for men. I'm not making this argument. I'm simply saying something that many people have said. And I'm saying the concept itself isn't insane. Men can do more there. So therefore, it is primarily more a male environment. And if that's true... Sorry, am I supposed to pay less because I'm invited, but I'm not actually part of the main action? If that's true, then yes, of course you should. But that's... Look, again, Shoshana, I am not making this argument. I have made this... You're making me mad, Scott. (laughs) I have to say what people have said. People say, look, the synagogue is a male institution. Okay, the synagogue is a male institution. It was created by men for men for things that only men can do. Okay, women can come and sit in the Ezrat Nashim and they can be part of Tefillah B'Tzibor if you hold by that shita, by that opinion, but they're never going to be full participants. An Orthodox Jew will agree that women will never be full participants in the same way that men are in a shul. That is halachic reality, whether we like it or not. Why not? So I want to talk for a minute again about the fact that we're talking about Orthodox space and Orthodox Tefillah. Orthodox and even I'll go further and to say, for the most part, we're talking about Ashkenazi tefillah, which entails each individual saying all the words of the tefillah on his or her own. And I want to refer to Rabbi Meir Tversky's article in Tradition from, I don't know, it's a long time ago, probably in the 90s, where he talks about tefillah being a very personal devotion between an individual and God. And the fact that the tzibur aspects, the communal aspects are performed, performed is the wrong word, are enacted and done by men does not mean that a woman who is davening in shul is davening any less than the man who is davening on the other side of the mechitza. There is no obligation to read from the Torah, meaning it's an obligation on the tzibor, but there's no obligation on an individual to be reading from the Torah, and many men don't want to or can't. There's no obligation to daven from the Amud. There's no obligation to even if somebody's saying Kaddish, and plenty of women can say Kaddish as well, right? But even if one is saying Kaddish, the question of whether one is going to be leading the prayer as an obligation is, even though we use that vocabulary, is taking it a step too far. I think that we need to perhaps revisit our assumptions about prayer. I want to take it even further, Anne, what you're saying, agree, and as you said before, I'll raise you one, which is that again, with the exception of somebody saying Kaddish, which we call colloquially someone with a chiyuv, leaving that aside, which is a special category, if 
a person is asked by the Gabbai to lead davening, he is supposed to say no. He's only supposed to say yes if he's asked repeatedly on the third time because it's considered an arrogant thing to just get up and daven. You're supposed to say, no, 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 let somebody else daven. In other words, it's not only that there isn't an obligation, al halacha, whether or not this is done practically in the shuls, but al halacha, a man is supposed to initially refuse to get up there. So there certainly isn't an obligation. By the way, this is in contrast to an aliyah, which is considered a mitzvah reading out of the Torah, which again, mi'ikar hadin, technically women can do as well. But even though practically speaking, we no, don't but, do that now. But leaving aside the women reading from the Torah, meaning there's on a Shabbos without Hosafot, let's say a basic Shabbos, you've got seven aliyot and you've got a minimum of 10 men in that shul to be able to read the seven aliyot. Three of those men are not getting aliyot, meaning it's not, it's part of the tefillah, it's part of the service, but it's not part of the obligation per se. And I feel like I understand that women and men are not equal participants in the whole of everything that goes on in shul. But to say that in the actual davening, that devotion and connection between the individual and God that can take place in a very different way than it does in private, um, I think men and women are the same in that regard. I just, it's funny, every time we have these conversations, I just can't believe we're having these conversations again and again and again and again. And I, I feel like my orthodoxy, unfortunately, in the past 15 years has just been defined as like, you know, begging, like just begging to be seen, begging to be heard, begging to, and it's, it's, it's hard for me to even have these conversations, which is, I mean, over the years, people have actually raised this point with me, Scott, like, oh, man, we should talk about the hotel and we should put a, a whole campaign in and we should this and sometimes I just can't do it like sometimes I just can't continue to ask and fight and beg and of course every time I go and I my son was bar mitzvah a few like I don't know a month ago at this point it was we didn't do the bar mitzvah at the hotel but like the night before because we're able to and because people were in from America we're like hey should we give him an aliyah at the hotel yeah let's do it and we decided literally 12 hours before and we went there and it was horrible for me I'm five foot two on a really good day and on the lift, you know, they have like this, like, I don't know, it's like six inches off the ground or something like a little footstep that a woman can, that's on, on our side of the machita that you can stand on and look over. But I literally, you guys can't see me, but like literally my eyes were like, I had to strain and go all the way up and try and see. And it was, I couldn't hear anything. I could hardly see anything. It was degrading. It was degrading. And so we're talking about even space at the hotel, but like, we're really, really not considered. We're just not considered. We're, we're there in any possible way that we can maybe make ourselves be. And as, I don't know, a modern state of Israel who's trying to live in Jewish values, I think the way that women are treated is really atrocious. And, and I say this, you know, without getting into women of the wall, without getting into anything, but like, as you're, you brought up, Scott, like we're just talking about a space issue, a respect issue. And Anne, I like, I think it was you who said it in the beginning, like, why don't we just treat people with kavod? Like that kavod is so lacking that that for me as, as a basis is very hurtful. Like I'm not talking about shivion. I'm not talking about equality. I'm not talking about I need to do it. I'm talking about like a basic feeling of I feel respected. I feel heard. And therefore we can together make things better. I don't feel that at all. And I think that's what, you know, for me, it comes down to that basic thing is missing and everything we've been talking about it stems from that. And Shoshana, again, I'm coming from the men's side of the Mechitza. So obviously my perspective is not the same, but 
to me. It just feels like men are constantly giving lip service to how much we respect women. And when it comes to practical implementation of let's just use space as an example, it's always the opposite. I shouldn't say always. That's not fair. But it's too often the opposite. And while there are some places that are trying to do better, it's not happening en masse in any way that is fair to women. And I think it's it's a stain. It's a stain of what Orthodox Judaism should be. I want to raise one more thing, though. And this is my question. And this gets back to the theoretical I presented before. Based on the assumption, which Anne, you refuted nicely. I'm not, again, I'm not making the point. But based on an assumption that a shul is more a male space than a female space. Should someone argue that that's true either? De jure, de hey, facto. Scott, Scott, I agree with you that a shul is more of male space than the female space. First of all, it's the male, it's a male bonding club, really, right? That's really part of the nature of the minion. But also, even if we wanted society to be different and women should be equally present in a minion, they're not. We're not. I'm not. I don't want to say otherwise. Okay, so, right, granted that's true. Given that those are the facts, lamentable or not, given that those are the current facts, maybe it's time that we start thinking about new types of spaces that are either equal or women-dominated, and I don't mean in place of a shul. A shul was created at a time in history because of a specific purpose. That That's what happened historically. We could perhaps try and think outside the box. I don't know what these spaces would be. Maybe we need to create new communities, new spaces, new types of institutions that no one's even thought of yet. Not instead of a Beit Knesset, alongside a Beit Knesset, that would be a different type of space for women and men together, or perhaps where women are dominant. I don't know. So again, this division of male-female space shows up in a lot of different areas of traditional Orthodox life, and certainly in Israel, that goes beyond the synagogue. I'm going to give an example of what is often called in communities a votbanim, when there's a learning between fathers and sons. And what happens when, you know, in the best, in the best of all good intentions, right? There are families that only have daughters. Do they not get to participate? There are families that don't have fathers or fathers who are away on business or miluim or, or are sick that night, right? Meaning there's so many reasons to say, well, what about the mom taking the sons to learn? So what that means then to me is, and some communities have horim viladim, right? Where parents go with children and it could be mothers and daughters and mothers and sons and fathers and daughters and fathers and sons. And that really is, I would say, what we all want in terms of what you're describing, in terms of there being dignity and respect to all participants. Until the Israeli society switches all of those avot banim, uh, and I'm not talking about in the ultra-Haredi world where the division of the sexes is so great that there would never be a thought of the mothers and the daughters going. But in any community, and I think this is pretty wide-ranging, including in some of the Haredi communities, where mothers and daughters would be the default participants, I think we need to think about space. And it's so much easier when we're talking about learning as opposed to davening, where everybody is welcome. And that means that it can't be awkward for the daughter to show up. It can't be awkward for the mother to walk with her son through the room, whatever. How to make it not awkward? I don't have the answer to that. I think that it takes people like you, Scott, honestly, to say, yeah, yeah, come in, come in, right? And then people begin to feel welcomed. And then it becomes a norm. And someone can go home and say, you know what? I had such a great time learning with my child in this setting 
come next week as well to the other women, to the other daughters. And then we get a much more equitable society. You know, it's interesting. And talking about learning, I feel that we as Jews, as Orthodox Jews, want to impart and do impart to our children millennia and centuries of tradition. And we do Navi and we do Gemara and we do all these kind, all these things that are not really relevant to today. I mean, you know, we can argue how relevant I'm obviously relevant, but I'm saying not like in a practical sense where I'm going to take what happens with an ox and use it unless I'm actually doing, you know, car insurance policies. But my point is, why don't we have a lesson in high schools and in, and in uh, grade schools about how, as a Jew, do we make people comfortable in a setting? How do we marry modern values or, or loving values with orthodox values? Can we? How do we do that? If we can train our kids how to logically you know, work things out in the Gemara or how to d- determine whether something's kosher, why can't we train our kids how to balance and, and, and take into, I have a situation right now. There's people here who may not feel comfortable. What do I do? What a beautiful, beautiful thing that would be just to start training our people to think like that. And myself included, by the way, I don't think of everyone who could possibly in the space. And that's to my own, I'm sh- my own shame. Um, but I think Scott, like you said, Scott, even raising this is a big deal, unfortunately, in our world. And, and I would love to see how whatever you want to call that, you know, correct, write the curriculum and I'll, I'll help get it in. Like, how do we talk about these kinds of things? How do we make sure that people are welcome, that orthodoxy is a welcoming space and, and open and, and whatever else, you know, the good words that you want to use? Shoshana, that is actually a really important idea. I didn't think about that. This idea of let's make this an actual part of our shul curricula, if you will. How to make people feel comfortable coming in. Maybe just the starting point is simply making it public and saying, we have to be more welcoming. This applies to women who don't feel comfortable coming to shul. This applies to people who are not members of the shul, who sit in the back and don't know, really know where to go. It applies to lots of people. And we can all, all of us work on that better. And maybe the best thing is for rabbis to start saying, we're going to make this public. We're going to talk about this from the pulpit. We're going to have classes on this. Obviously, how many classes do you need on making people want, you know, it's not necessarily a year-long curriculum, but you do need to raise as an issue. Menschlichkeit, simple ethics and moral values demand that we make people feel welcome in our joint religious spaces. I think also it's the way we teach our children, right? The same way we want to treat our children to be mekabel kol adam besever panim yafot. We want to treat our children to, to receive everybody well. And that means whether somebody looks different from us or dresses different from us or acts different from us or whatever, within reason, I get it, right? But the idea that it's part of the values that we want to convey that this is the kind of thing of, of caring about other people with dignity. Because no matter what we have to say about how people might be different from us, that Selim Elohim that's in every human being applies. We need to do more than give lip service to that line. Yeah. I remember years ago, maybe it was 20 years ago more, Aliza, my wife and I were standing outside a shul in somewhere in Yushalayim, um, a Haredi section of Yushalayim, and there was a guy selling chulant from one of those chulant carts. I think it was a Thursday night. So we went over there. I don't necessarily think to buy chulant, but we walked by, and the guy yelled at my wife, no women's here, no women's here. So we have actually laughed about that because it was such a ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous line, no women by the chulant cart. 
The question is, where does that attitude come from? And too often it comes from the fact, exactly as you're saying, and no one's teaching them that that's not the way to act. There's no malice there. It's just ignorance. And I think we have to start saying that, you know something? Our halachot are our halachot, and they're divine, and we are Orthodox Jews, and we're proud to be Orthodox Jews. That does not mean that we have to go and detract from the spaces that women actually have and should have. Let me just conclude. I don't know if you remember the old Miller Lite commercial, Taste Great, Less Filling. Before that commercial... Miller Lite had a different ad. It was everything you ever wanted in a beer and less because it had fewer carbohydrates and fewer calories. So everything you ever wanted in a beer and less. And it just occurred to me yesterday as I was thinking about this podcast that too often in halacha, we treat women, everything you can possibly have in halacha and less. That's how orthodoxy treats women too often. Everything that you can have, but less. We can't do that anymore. There's no reason why it should be less. I'm not saying they should have more than halacha gives them, but less, we can't do that. All right. Well, anyway, this has been really enlightening, and I'm really glad that we exhausted the topic of women and orthodoxy <laughs> today. One more check off the old bucket list. Anyway, Ann Gordon and Shoshana Kishaskal, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>